do, this is our prayer, we do ask that you would be glorified today in us. We pray that you would be glorified in us as we listen to your word with obedient hearts, with hearts that would hear and obey and apply your truths. And Lord, we pray this would be true for those of us who are believers as we are sanctified, as we grow in your word, as we are warned here in this passage and find humility in the walk that you've given us in Christ. And Lord, we pray for those who don't know you, that they would come to you. They would learn the truth of the gospel. They would take these great serious warnings of those who are bound up in sin and see that there is freedom in Christ. Help us know these truths, apply these truths, and obey this. We ask in the name of Jesus, amen. You may be seated. Well, as always, it's a glorious morning to be with you. Such a wonderful privilege and joy we have to open the Word of God and study it together. Please turn to Matthew 23. Today we begin our look at the seven woes, or you could say seven curses that Jesus pronounced on the Pharisees. We do say a great huge thanks to all ladies. By the way, the gifts are for all female adults. You guys bring beauty and truth and such joy to our lives, and we just want to thank you for that. The opposite of you is what we read about here, these Pharisees. So that's my great segue into Jesus' curses on the Pharisees. The idea of Jesus judging or issuing a curse upon people should not surprise us. Announcing weal and woe, which is blessing and cursing, is a part and parcel to the ministry of any true prophet. Jesus was and is the one to whom all the prophets pointed. And key to understanding Jesus' identity is not only identifying Him as the ultimate king and the ultimate priest, but also seeing Him as the ultimate prophet. He came to preach truth, to call people to repentance and faith. This is the most loving thing a person can do, and for him to pronounce judgment and blessing would be part of his ministry, be part of his ministry of calling people to faith and repentance. We've seen that Jesus do this before. You'll remember way back when we studied Matthew chapter 11, Jesus made it clear those who did not repent, even if they were Jews, these people were cursed. It says in verse 20 of Matthew 11, he began to denounce cities where most of his mighty works have been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they, had, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Can you imagine this? Jesus in his ministry was denouncing whole cities of Jewish people. I know this sort of messes up some folks' idea of Jesus, some people's view of Jesus is that he came and he was sort of a limp-wristed, milk-toast caregiver. But this chapter that we're beginning today, and Lord willing, we'll continue through this month, will tell you of a Jesus who was bold like a prophet and spoke like a prophet, announcing, yes, blessing, but also cursing. And Jesus will observe the day and the remainder of this month Lord willing is a Jesus who is not afraid to openly curse people who did not accept His Word or His work. Just to give you a little bit of a preview, Jesus in the chapter cursed the Pharisees. He cursed them for being legalists. We're looking at today, Jesus 
curse them for being deceivers, for being hypocrites. That was sort of an overarching sin of theirs. And for being murderers, you could call that a pre-curse. What we'll see at the end of this is that curse extends to all people who blindly follow them. This was a sad truth for Jesus. This brought Jesus to tears. To think about all the thousands and thousands of Jews who just blindly followed the false leaders, the religious leaders of that day. If they continued their tacit acquiescence to what the Jewish leaders were giving them that day, they too would be under the same curse. Well, before we read the text, I do want to add one more thing. In every situation, a little bit of humility goes a long way. That's why I made sure we read a couple of passages in our worship this morning. Ephesians 2 talks about these people who are cursed, the sons of disobedience, and Paul says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. First Corinthians 2, 6, we heard what that curse is. It's damnation for all the people, all their sins. And Paul lists the kind of sinners, swindlers, drunkards, homosexuals, adult, adulterers, and so forth. And he reminded them, as such were some of you. So on the one hand, if you're a believer and you follow Jesus, if you trust Him for salvation, you're not under the curse that Jesus is pronouncing in these verses. But don't forget, it's not because you are something better. We're all under the curse. Just look to your own life as an example. Just look for the remnants of that old man, the, the flesh that draws you back into sin, the former you. It's only by God's grace that you have faith and have repentedly followed Jesus. So let's not read this chapter like a Pharisee. The Pharisees look at other people and say, I'm glad I'm not like that person. Let's not look at the Pharisees and say, I'm glad I'm not like a Pharisee because that just makes you a Pharisee. Let's be thankful and grateful to God for having mercy and grace upon us because we are no different. In fact, we're all like these people. So we should stay humble, stay repentant, Focus on our faith and our love for Christ. If you're not a believer, this chapter should give you hope. Thinking again of those passages we read from Ephesians and Corinthians. Because even if you count yourself among those sinners, among the sinners we're even going to read about who are under a curse, there's hope for you. Believe and repent. And you'll be saved from that curse. Follow Jesus. You'll escape this sure damnation. Enter a new life with Christ. Well, let's read this. Matthew 23, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to read down to verse 15. That's what we're going to study today. Matthew 23, beginning in 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat and do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you're all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for if you, you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself 
will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut up the kingdom of heaven's of heaven and people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. This is the word of God. Many years ago, it's been more than a decade that I preached this, well, Luke's version of this, and just like for us this time, it took some time to move through the passage and work through all these different woes, these seven woes. If you count them, there are seven woes here. So it took me some weeks, three or four, maybe five weeks, and at about week three, a quote-unquote leader of our church came up. This is a different church. This is not here, but a a leader of the church came up to me and said, Pastor John, we, we get it. Uh, we're, we got the picture. We got the message. Repent. There's damnation. There's woes. There's curses. We get it. Why don't you move on to the part where Jesus is a lot nicer and kinder and warm? We're sort of tired of this. And I told him, listen, I'm kind of tired of it too. I have to preach it. I, I'm not just I'm not just hearing it for 45 minutes. I, I spend my whole week studying these woes and thinking through all this stuff. It's pretty hard for me to stand up week after week and preach woe to the church. But Jesus did it. It's in the Bible. We've committed ourselves to studying the Bible, and we can't understand these things by just skimming through it. So it's going to take some time, unfortunately, to go through all this to understand what Jesus is saying. And when I finally finished the chapter, a, a young man who'd been visiting with us sat in the back every Sunday. He came up that last Sunday and said, Pastor, I need to thank you. I said, why is that? He said, I've been coming for several weeks here, and for these weeks you have only preached about woe and the need for repentance. And it took all of these weeks where I finally realized I need to repent. And I did it just moments ago. I finally repented and had faith in Jesus Christ. And I want to thank you for preaching repentance every single week. Ironically, that quote-unquote church leader left our church angry, went to another church for a while, and as far as I know, he's not even in church anymore at all. And Jesus was not interested in preaching to tickle people's ears. He was not interested in preaching to draw a crowd to make him popular with the masses he didn't care about the size of crowd he gathered. He only concerned himself with truth. The preaching of the life-giving word. And whether you are not a believer yet or you are a believer, we need the word of God. We see the word of God as precious jewels that we come to and, and gather truth from, and they bless us, and it's beautiful to us even when it's hard to hear. Yes, it's nice to hear comforting truths all the time, but that's not everything that's in the Bible, and it's not everything that Jesus preached. So let's turn our attention here to the truths here preached by Jesus, and I pray that we come, after these several weeks, we come away as changed people. Let these truths define us. And if you're not a genuine believer, may these truths cause in you a faith that would lead you to repentance. Now, what Jesus did was to essentially pronounce a series of curses on the Pharisees. Seven times he called out, woe 
to the Pharisees. Woe is you, Pharisees, scribes he included. Woe to you, Pharisees. It's important to note right here at the beginning what this word woe means. What is the word woe? W-O-E. It's not W-H-O-A like woe little horsey. This is woe. The Greek word behind this that you read in Matthew is a similar sounding word. It sounds like more like why, O-U-A-I. The word means alas, or it's a, it's a shout of impending doom. It's related to guilt. It's impending doom that's related to guilt that was coming. It's used to announce something or someone as blameworthy and sinful and deserving judgment. In verse 15, we just read this. Jesus said, you make him twice the child of hell as you yourselves. This gives us a clue what's going on. By preaching this, he announced the sin and the guilt of the Pharisees and their impending doom. For this, these sins, they are cursed. They'll be punished forever in the fire of hell. I skimmed a sermon this week by a Puritan by the name of Gilbert Tennant. He wrote a sermon in the 1700s called The Danger of an Unconverted Ministry. He preached this in a time leading up to the Great Awakening, and he, like George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards, agreed that one of the biggest problems in the church was the fact that many of the clergy, many pastors, were not even Christians. Now, they had all the accoutrement of Christianity. They talked about Jesus. They were in a church. They talked about Christianity. If these men had never come to the point where they were convicted of their sins, fell down on their faces, surrendered, had faith in Christ, and repented of sin. And so the church itself was corrupt, and Tenet and the others, integral in that first great awakening, preached against an unconverted clergy. Well, this is the situation in first century Israel. The men who were supposed to be most knowledgeable, the men who were supposed to be helping the people understand Scripture, were not even themselves men of faith. They were not even themselves men who had repentance in their heart and looked and anticipated the Messiah. They were in it for many other reasons. Israel had purged itself, finally, from paganism. And for a while, after they returned to their homeland, the land of Israel, they built up Jerusalem, they built the temple in Jerusalem. You read about this in Ezra and Nehemiah. There is a desire for purity. There is a desire for the Word of God. You read about it. I think about Nehemiah 8 as they got up and there was essentially an expository sermon. It says very clearly they read the text, they explained the text, and then they, they gave it meaning. They showed the people what it means to their hearts, and everybody rose up. And they were broken for their sin and wept and cried. They, they felt like judgment was coming because of their sin, and they gave them hope if they would only repent, and the people did repent. It was in that time that a group of people called the Pharisees, rose up, and they weren't bad at first because their whole idea was, we're going to help people know the Bible. Sort of a Bible movement. We're going to help people understand what Scripture requires of them and help people obey the Word of God. Over time, however, these men turned away from actually knowing and spreading the truth of Scripture to studying the works of men. 
They studied various rabbis and all the different applications, and they, they began to make these applications of truth into law, equal to, in their minds, the law of Moses, the law of God. The desire to help people know the Word was replaced with understanding what nuances and what laws and rules, literally thousands of rules, they would make list after list of rules that they insisted that people obey and told them, if you don't obey these, you don't obey God. And what they found very quickly is that by issuing these lists, they had power over people. They found ways to manipulate people. They found ways to have power over folks. After a couple hundred years of this, they hardly even knew Scripture. In fact, that's why Jesus came to them so many times and said, have you not read? It's almost like you guys have not even read the Bible you say you're an expert of. Their focus was on the rules. Their focus was on the specific legalistic applications of Scripture rather than Scripture itself. The Pharisees were no longer people of the book, people of the Word. They're all about application, all the minute rules that they had made up. They were essentially an unconverted clergy. Pharisees, like the scribes and the Sadducees, knew nothing of the power of God, and they knew nothing of the Word of God. And the worst part of it is that they claimed to know God the most. They used their system as a means for personal gain, for popularity, and wielding this influence and power over people. So Jesus pronounced these curses against them. He tells them why. He unveiled their sin. It all sort of new was there, but He unveiled it so that everyone could see it with clarity. And these woes, these curses come to us as a great warning against our own sin, against our own pride. They warn us if you're not converted, it warns you toward fleeing that sin, like I said, even giving you hope that you can abandon that while there's still opportunity. Now, the way Jesus gives these woes, it's not all nice and organized. It's not like He says, this is a sermon I'm going to preach. I have seven woes. Let's go through each one of these seven, and let's look at them very neatly and cleanly. It's a little more organic than that. Some of the woes are sort of paired up to focus on one sin, and that we'll see that even today. Other times you have a woe by itself that addresses another sin. Jesus just moves to the sin, sins, and he, he declares woe on these men for their sins. And so what I've done is tried to clarify, as Paul did, even what we read earlier, as Paul did, the kind of sinners, the kind of sins and sinners that God curses, that Jesus curses. What breed of sin? What breed of sinners? And we'll take one of them today because it covers a lot, but as we move through these weeks, we'll find there are other sins that are sort of paired together. So what is the first one? Who does Jesus curse? Number one, legalists. Legalists. This first one, Jesus, uh, He's a little more structured than the rest of the passage. He explains that the nature of that legalism, He sort of demonstrates it for us. Then He contrasts that with the, the kind of life and gospel that He preached. And then he finishes with the curse. He gives two woes in verses 13, 14, and 15. All right, let's take these one at a time. Number one, we see the demonstration of, of legalism. A, if you're writing notes, a demonstration of legalism. Look at verses 1 to 7. This gives us the description or the demonstration of legalism. Jesus said to the crowds of disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. 
for they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. They make their phylacteries broad, their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feast and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces being called rabbi by others. As I count them, there are three basic things these rascals do that Jesus mentions here in relation to their legalism. One, they sit in Moses' seat, they don't practice what they preach. Two, they give commands that are impossible to carry out. And three, they love positions and titles of authority and respect. Now, verse 3 says, says they sit in Moses' seat, but they do not practice what they preach. You get the idea. It's pretty simple. Moses' seat is the seat of authority in the synagogue. It would have been much like we think of a pulpit. I mean, other things happen up in this pulpit. I mean, when a guy stands up here on the Lord's Day and preaches like I am this morning, we're assuming a position of authority, a position of expertise in terms of Scripture. Back then, the teachers would sit down as they taught, and oftentimes they would call that seat of authority the, the seat of Moses or Moses' seat because essentially what he's supposed to be doing is expositing the, the law of Moses to the people of God, explaining it to them and giving them understanding and applying it to their hearts. That's what they were supposed to do. And Jesus even says here, essentially, when they do that, obey that. When there's actually preaching authoritatively and doing the right thing from Moses' seat, when it comes to you as truth from the Word of God, truth from Moses, then, then obey that, do that. But these men don't even do that. They don't practice, even when they're teaching what is right, they don't practice what they preach. Jesus says these guys take their position, but their lives are lived in contrast and contradiction to the things that they preach. They say, be holy, and they are anything but holy. They say, be faithful to your wives, but they're divorcing and marrying woman after woman after woman, treating them horribly. They say, fulfill the law, support your aging parents, but they hide their money and shelter their money from supporting their parents. They say, don't cheat your countrymen, have honest dealings, but their whole system of buying and selling and changing money in the, the temple is a, a huge scam to make themselves wealthy and to make the people of Israel poor. It always is sad when you hear the downfall of a pastor. What's worse is when you see or know of a pastor who openly violates the very things that he preaches against and he's not being asked to step down or he's refusing to step down. These guys surround themselves with sycophants and yes-men and quote out-of-context passages like, touch thou not God's anointed, and they carry on sinning. That's the kind of hypocrisy that this legalism Produce experts in the laws and the millions of applications and thousands of different laws, but they themselves could not even obey the basic rule of Scripture. Jesus would say later, you don't even obey the weightier things, the, the heavy things, the true things, the clear things. You're, you're so focused on all these little applications, you're not even aware of the heavy things, of the things that are clear and true and big. You've missed the whole point. 
The second part of this description of legalism is in verse 4. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with a finger. You get the idea? They're in charge of coming up with all the applications. Here's what Moses says about the Sabbath. Let me give you a list of 453 things that you can do and you're supposed to do to obey the Sabbath. I've given you plenty of examples before. I won't do it again, but the Pharisees love to come up with all sorts of ridiculous rules, many of them relating to the Sabbath. Like how heavy a stone you're allowed to pick up on the Sabbath. Incidentally, the answer is no heavier than your heaviest baby. What kind of laws that they came up with. The thing to take note of is because they lived in an agrarian culture and most people were farmers or vintners or uh, worked the fields with animals, they made all kinds of laws that would apply to farming, but these, these men, they did not farm. They were professional lawyers. These things didn't apply to them. They didn't have a problem with giving all these laws to other people. That's what it means. They didn't even lift a finger to help people. They, they just issued the laws and watch people stumble and fail. And that's the second idea Jesus gives of their legalism. The third part we find is in the beginning of verse 5, uh, beginning with verse 5, they do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces being called, by, called rabbi by others. Again, this is not too hard to understand. Their objective is pretty plain. Objective is the praise of man. Their goal is to gather respect and influence, even money, uh, from others. You just said they make their phylacteries broad. We talked about phylacteries, those, those boxes with Scripture in them. They, they interpreted or they reinterpreted what Jews understood to be something that was allegorical. It wasn't supposed to be real Scripture tied to their foreheads, but they took it literally, and in and around the time of Jesus, they began to do this. They began to strap these boxes on their foreheads, these phylacteries, and they would make them bigger and bigger and more ostentatious to prove somehow that they were more spiritual than everyone else. Jesus said they also make their fringes long. The Bible actually says that uh, the Jew Jewish people could uh, tie a, a little string on their, on their garment to remind them of certain passages. It's like you or I would carry around verses or maybe an app on your phone to remind you of these verses, they would, they would have these strings. The Bible permits this, but what did they do? Oh, they make them long. They make them colorful. They make them big. They drug behind, drug behind them all sorts of strings and tassels to prove somehow that they were more godly than anybody else. Look at how many tassels he has. I wonder if he memorizes all those passages. Look at all that he's got there. Jesus also says they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in marketplaces, titles. They love, Jesus said, these titles and positions. You know people like this, don't you? Hopefully it's not you. At work, all, all, all they do really is to get the next promotion, perhaps in the military to get the next rank, and they love to let people know where they are. I remember I was told by a fellow pastor that once he 
finished his doctorate, he was going to require everybody in the church to call him Dr. Mike, and they did. Call me Dr. Mike. By the way, if you're an adult, you can call me John. As someone said, they called Paul, Paul. Children, you need to respect your adults. That's not just for me. That's all adults. Just respect adults. Don't call them by their first name. But if you're an adult, I mean, call, call me John. There's no titles like this that we carry around and make us feel important. Well, I was thinking about this kind of legalism today. What, where is legalism today? Where do we see it in the church? Where do we see it in Christianity? Why would, would uh, this be important for uh, Matthew to feel like this needs to be, what Jesus said here, needs to be put down? We need to hear this. There must have been some threat in that early church, and I think even today, because God inspired these words. These are things that we've got to hear, things that we've got to think about. What is legalism today? If it's not tassels and phylacteries and Moses' seat, how do we spot it? What kind of legalism is alive and well today? Well, I wrote down, at least in my mind, you don't have to, you won't be quizzed on this, but I wrote down three kinds of legalism that I think are alive and well today. One is, you know, pardon the word here, the long word here, soteriological legalism. This is legalism, soteriology is a study of salvation. This is legalism as it pertains to how someone is saved. In other words, works-based salvation. Is that alive? You better believe it. Is it alive in Christianity? I guarantee it. You ever heard of the Roman Catholic Church? Yes, they, they include ideas of grace and kindness, but, but fundamentally, the idea is you got to do this. you got to do this. If you do this, if you do this, you're good. You're in. There's rituals. There's things. Yes, we believe in God's grace, but there's also these things you must do. Now, the Catholic Church has changed since Vatican 64. Things have changed, and they're a little more open to other religions and other thoughts, but especially pre-Vatican 64, pre-Vatican II, they fundamentally believed you've got to join the Catholic Church, you've got to be baptized like we say, we've got to do this, you've got to do these rituals. If you do that, you're in. Now, this is no different, really, than a lot of religions. Mormonism basically says the same thing. You want to be a god? Well, you've got to do this, 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 and this. Hinduism, Buddhism say the same thing. You want to reach nirvana? You want to escape the wheel of existence? You've you got to do this, this, and this, and this. Build up your karma, spin these wheels, count your beads, do those things, and you'll reach it. This is soteriological legalism. Same thing in other religions. Do these things, and you shall be saved. Do these things, and you will be saved. Well, this is the most obvious kind of legalism, and, and it... This kind of legalism is what Paul vehemently in the book of Galatians opposed. He actually had, as Peter drifted into that kind of mentality, essentially they were saying that you had to become a Jew, you had to go through some rituals and become a, a Jewish proselyte, then you could become a Christian. You do these rituals, then you become a Christian, and Paul had to confront Peter to his face and tell him, brother, this is not the grace of Christ, we are saved by grace through faith. That faith is a gift of God, lest any man should boast. We just read this earlier. Well, I don't suspect that unless you're from a Catholic background or maybe uh, you're 
mistaken and you came up the hill a little too far and came in here and thought this was a Catholic church. I don't imagine that there's a whole lot of us that struggle with this kind of legalism. But the truth is, all legalism flows from the same idea. It's all, po- it's, all tr- it's all fruit from the poisonous tree, right? It all comes from the same thought, and it's a false thought that somehow you earn and merit God's pleasure with what you can produce. You, you merit God's pleasure, God's salvation in the case of soteriological legalism, you merit salvation by what you produce. But all legalism flows from that. I wrote down another legalism. I I call it practical legalism. This is probably what we're most familiar with. There are brands of Christianity that insist on certain things that are not required of us in the Bible, like certain Bible translations or certain clothes you can and cannot wear certain rules. My, my friend told me that one time he found out that the deacons of his church would go out during the worship service, and this is back when you could see the, where the radio was tuned, and they would look at the radios of everybody's car to make sure it wasn't on a rock station. This is the kind of legalism I think when we think of legalism, this is the kind of legalism we think of. And I would say a lot of people who are caught up in that mentality, a lot of people would say they believe in salvation by faith through grace alone. This, they would say they believe not, they would reject soteriological legalism, but it's very similar in the fact that they think they please God by producing, by doing, by earning, by, there's, God's got a big merit calculator upstairs in heaven, and he's just sort of giving you merit for all the things you do. And so that they, though they may acknowledge we're saved by grace, at the same time, they sort of live differently. They live in contrast to this. They live with this sort of oppressive idea of earning merit. There's one other kind of legalism that I wrote down, and that is fashionable legalism. This came to me back about 20 years ago, there was this movement called the Emergent Church. Some of you remember this movement, the Emergent Church, and they came out, and they were the experts on culture and how Christianity could reach culture. And they, with a whole lot of pride, looked down upon everybody else, and we're doing it wrong, and your traditional church, and The way you're doing things is all wrong. We have the edge. We understand culture. It really began with a sort of gnosis, a Gnostic idea that we have come into this knowledge. And we know, we look down on all these old-fashioned churches because we know how to do a church in a way that, that real lost people are saved. And then they begin coming up with ways you're supposed to worship. Even clothes you're not supposed to wear. You... You dare not wear a suit on Sunday morning in an emergent church. They start coming up with rules. And again, you kind of don't think of them as being legalists because, well, they didn't like legalism at all. They, they were the free grace people. But then you start realizing, well, they just have their own brand of legalism that's just more fashionable. It's legalism 2.0. And this applies pretty much to every generation. It's even happening now. You hear it all the time. There's... A group of Christians that 
have come to some, some level of knowledge and we understand culture and we're a little ahead of you and look at your old-fashioned ways and if you did this, 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 you'd really be able to reach the people that we reach, the lost. You're just reaching a bunch of saved people. That's another form of legalism. Now Jesus makes this point, and he doesn't do this every time, but he shows us how legalism overall, this approach, this idea that ultimately you come up with a list and that's how you find merit and that's how you can at the same time of finding merit with God, you can find merit with other people. Jesus points this out and shows us how this is contrary, this legalism is contrary to the gospel. So here is B in my outline, the problem of legalism. Verse 8, but you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who's in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. Now the question is, is Jesus banning all titles from the Christian's life? I mean, you can't even call your dad, dad. Is that what Jesus is doing here? What's going on here? Well, obviously, in context, the answer is no. Jesus is banning the love of titles. He even says it. They love. They covet these titles because it means something to them to have those titles. I mean, later on, we learn in the early church, they clearly didn't interpret that verse as though Jesus banned all titles because they actually came up with titles such as elder and deacon. I don't think Jesus is banning titles. I don't think Jesus is banning any kind of term of respect. But I do think Jesus is banning the love of those titles, craving those positions, desiring to sit up front, wanting to do these things. I'm preaching an ordination service not long after this service ends. I'll be going to Nanakuli and preaching an ordination service for a, a man there. Actually, a man a lot of you know, Eddie Hunt, is going to be the new, new pastor at... Uh, at Nanakuli. He was called away from here to go be the worship leader there, and eventually uh, they asked him to be their pastor. Great guy. One of the things when I think about ordination, one of the things I look at it, does this guy crave this as a position of power or influence or perhaps even money? Usually not money, but is that what this guy wants? Because that would immediately disqualify him. If he wants that job, that position for power or influence. If he craves that or if he loves those titles, then he is indeed disqualified. That's exactly what Jesus is cursing here. These men love these titles. Let's read on. Verse 11, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus is not saying, hey, here's the fast track to be great in the kingdom, pretend you're humble. No, what he's saying is greatness is humility. Greatness is doing your work quietly. The gospel is not about making yourself known. It's about making Jesus known. It's not about names and positions and titles. It's not about authority. It's not about domination and recognition it's all about pursuing humility, the humility of namelessness, the humility of quiet service. 
That's where you find what Jesus, the word Jesus uses here, exaltation. You find joy, you find fulfillment, you find intimacy with God, not in exalting yourself, but exalting the Savior and humbling yourself. That's what being a Christian is all about. In fact, that is the perspective of the gospel. That is what it is to enter the kingdom, right? You enter the kingdom on your knees in the dirt in total surrender. You don't get up after entering the kingdom and say, oh, I've done it. Where's my title? Where's my badge? You stay humble. You have an honest assessment of your unworthiness. You live life in that humility and faith in Christ. You see how legalism is the polar opposite of this? It's all about gaining titles. It's all about accomplishing things and patting yourself on the back. The fact of the matter is, these false religions I mentioned earlier, they're not closer or farther from the gospel. They're the opposite of the gospel. The gospel says, come on your knees, acknowledging there's nothing you can do to merit or earn salvation. You come in total humility. Well, if you don't, you'll face judgment. These people will face judgment. Jesus is prepared as He goes through this to begin to announce the woes. We'll do this very quickly. He puts, announces this woe against the legalism, which is anchored in pride, which is the opposite of the gospel. Jesus says in verse 15, they're trying to take as many people with them. That activity elicits a second woe. Look at these two verses. Verse 13, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. We have the demonstration of legalism, the problem of legalism, finally to see the curse of legalism. Jesus said, you shut the door to the kingdom. You get this mental image, at least I do, of like a, a castle and the portcullis coming clanking down. ka -ching. You slam the door shut with your legalism, with your laws, with your rules, with your deviation from the gospel of grace. You, you shut the door to the kingdom. Your legalism is contrary to the truth. It's contrary to the gospel. It's contrary to humility and brokenness. You won't go in, and you don't want other people to go in. With your teaching, your selfish-minded religion, you've closed the door to the kingdom of God, and therefore you are cursed. Woe is you, impending doom, impending judgment for your sin and guilt. Worse than that, verse 15, essentially you work hard at getting others to become a Pharisee just like you. I suppose this is Jesus' only compliment of them. You work so hard, you do such a great job, because they become twice a son of Satan as you are. Congratulations. These are harsh words. Jesus had earlier called the Pharisees sons of Satan. Here he calls them a child of hell. You're cursed for your legalism. You're cursed because... You bring people, you draw people into your false system so that you can have more and more power. They begin to partake and see the system. They begin to work that system themselves. They begin to gain in power and influence and popularity. And they become as much a son of hell as you. Well, 
We're finished with the first two woes. How should we respond? This is pretty easy. Jesus told us we enter the kingdom on our knees, enter the kingdom in total surrender like a worm, not by our merits, not by coming up and handing these little feeble works and rituals to God and say, hey, look what I did. No, we stand before Him and we say, I trust in Your Son. I can do nothing but have faith in Him. And then once we're in, we don't stand up and proclaim victory for ourselves. We continue to pursue that humility. We prefer one another. We serve one another. We love one another. Well, because that is what Jesus did for us. We walk humbly before our God. We realize that we're here only by the grace of God. Let's pray God would impress this upon our hearts, the way in which we walk. If you're not a believer, how to enter the kingdom. Lord, we take great warning from these curses, from these woes against the Pharisees, and it's hard to hear. It's not fun to preach. It's not fun to sit through a sermon where there's just woe and cursing and all kinds of hard truths, but Lord, these are truths, and the truth is what sets us free. The truth is what calls us to Your Son, and the truth is what helps us see the gospel and understand these, the need of humility and brokenness for salvation. And so, Lord, we ask that You would convince us of these truths, call us to salvation. For those who aren't believers, call them to genuine salvation. For those of us who are believers, call us to humility and brokenness. Help us to see the worthlessness of pursuing titles and fame, popularity, credit from others. Ultimately, may we not pursue credit from You as though somehow we can buy You off with our good works. Lord, we trust in You. We obey You because it brings You honor and glory, not because it brings us honor and glory. Help us do this, Lord, we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand for a benediction. This is inspired by what we read earlier, Ephesians chapter 2, 1 to 10. Now may we go knowing that who we were, knowing that we were once children of disobedience, children of death, cursed and destined for God's wrath. But by God's grace, we have been saved through His gift of faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.